Welcome to the Listen to Your Gut podcast with international best-selling author Jeannie Patel-Thompson. Because your body is your subconscious. Your body is the densest part of your soul. Welcome everyone to Tap Into Your Healthy Self. My name is Annabelle Fisher and I'm delighted to be back with you again today. I specialize in working with highly sensitive people who want to move out of simply functioning in life and transition into feeling safe enough to be authentic in life, living to their fullest, healthiest potential. And you can visit my website at www.theefthealingcenter.com for details. So on to today's show. This is a show that I am particularly excited about hosting. It's a topic that's very close to my heart. Uh, when I started exploring this topic, I, I had profound changes happening in my life. Um, and so today we will be exploring vulnerability what it means to be vulnerable, and what happens when we step into vulnerability, that emotional exposure, the shame and the guilt, and how we numb in order to survive. So this could be quite the journey. The word vulnerability can suggest negative connotations, but what if stepping into that place was truly and permanently healing? Being vulnerable may expose us to judgments, criticism, and being wounded on some level. Being vulnerable takes courage. Some people avoid it at all costs, feeling threatened or unsafe, and yet others embrace it wholeheartedly. I've been joined by three dear friends and colleagues today who know exactly what stepping into vulnerability means. They'll talk about the risks they took to be vulnerable and what happened as a result. And I'm joined live by my lovely friend, Jeannie Patel-Thompson, Jeannie is a natural health writer and consumer advocate. She's had numerous books published on natural healing for digestive diseases. Her articles on natural health topics have appeared in publications in the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. And you can visit Jeannie's website at www.listentoyourgut.com. So that's listentoyourgut.com. Welcome to the call, Jeannie. Thank you, Annabelle. It's very great nice to have you here. <laughs> it's great to have you here. And uh, I'm thrilled uh, that you're going to be sharing some of your journey and your, your insights into vulnerability with us. So if you would like to join us on the call and contribute to the discussion and perhaps ask some questions or share some ideas, please call 347-215-6888. And we would be delighted to hear from you. So I was looking at vulnerability and what it meant uh, in my Collins Dictionary. And this is what it said. Um, Vulnerable, being capable of being physically or emotionally wounded or hurt. Liable or exposed to disaster or disease, etc. So it all sounds... um, fairly dramatic and I would suggest pretty unpleasant uh, to wound uh, from the Latin 
Vulneraire. I don't quite know how to pronounce that. Maybe you do, Jeannie. But what was interesting for me was that uh, capable of being physically or emotionally wounded or hurt, it it suggests something uh, with a highly negative uh, connotation or energy around it and something that perhaps people would shy away from. What are your thoughts on that, Jeannie? Well, I think that um, it looks like we're redefining vulnerability because, I mean, I, I sort of understand that definition. Capable of being wounded and hurt means that um, your heart is open and you're in connection and you're in relationship. Um, but perhaps we could change that to say consciously capable <laughs> because really we're all capable of being wounded and hurt. That's not really a choice we make or you know, something that we decide, and even someone who's in complete denial and who is numbing all of their feelings, um, the hurt is still occurring at the subconscious levels, and it's occurring at the visceral, at the physical level of the of the physical body. So, you know, I mean, I think for me, vulnerability is um, simply about telling the truth and mm-hmm. the whole truth and being able to own your own feelings. So it's not going to someone and saying, you know, you make me feel really, but rather to say, you know, I feel this and I feel that and recognizing that that may have something to do with that other person and it may have nothing to do with that other person. It may be all your own stuff. It may be that that person is mirroring to you or that person is pressing your own buttons. And that's part of, I think, the courage of vulnerability is to be willing to sit in that place where you say, well, these are just my feelings, without making a judgment or pronouncement about the person you're in relationship with and allowing that to unfold to the truth that is really there. How fabulous uh, that you would mention that, because that, that, for me, what I hear is ownership, like take, taking charge of this is what's going on for me, and yes, the other person may be playing a part, but they are uh, the mirror for me to 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 look a little deeper and to get an understanding of why I'm ultimately feeling this way. Mhm. And even, you know, if that person you find that you can't um you know, with some people you just go, well, they're just so toxic, I need to separate from them. But again, that's still that's still a gift to you of saying, okay, so this is a toxic person. Why is their toxicity entering me and disturbing me? Well, so now you know, okay, I have a boundary issue. I have to work on either my physical boundaries or my energetic boundaries so that that person's energy cannot enter my energy field. So there's even, you know, if it is largely, let's say that that is a very toxic, very nasty person, there's still something there that you can own and that you can um, heal within yourself to move forward. So I was reminded when you first mentioned this, Jeannie, um, about when I first arrived in Canada. So I emigrated here in uh, 1998, and I felt like a square peg in a round hole. So I thought it would be easy to move here because people spoke the same language as we spoke in Britain, and BC seemed to be pretty much like the area where I lived in the UK and uh, we ate pretty much the same food, and yet everything, it seemed to me at the time, once I had arrived, was totally different. Um, And I went through several years of um, criticizing and complaining and feeling like I didn't fit in and 
blaming myself uh, and feeling a lot of shame for not being able to fit in. I thought, how, how hard can it be to move from one culture to another, which is pretty similar? Um, but I also um, felt a lot of uh, frustration towards other people. I wanted them to be a certain way so that I could fit in. And it wasn't until I realized that um, the changes needed to come from within uh, that I really started to feel part of a community. And I looked at why it was so hard for me to fit in and why I felt uh, like an outsider um, and uncomfortable and overly sensitive. That was my word and too emotional and and so forth. So that, that was the place that I was coming from and feeling as though there was nobody that I could relate to. And mm-hmm. then once I started addressing what was going on for me and, and looked inside, uh, and I, I stepped into a place of sh- starting to share with people that this was a very uncomfortable journey for me and it wasn't easy to settle in a new country. Um, and that's when I found the connection with people. Right. So by opening up and starting to say this is actually quite hard and I'm, I don't know, I didn't know any British people. I didn't know you and your British husband at that stage. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of anybody British that I knew at that time. So all the people that I'd met were um, born in Canada. And well, that, was, that, that makes sense to me because until you opened up and told the truth about your feelings, you are likely perceived as um, standoffish and maybe Absolutely. a bit snobby and formal and, you know, not somebody who wanted to be, you know what I mean, just because of the cultural differences. And, you know, the British accent is more formal, it's more clipped, it's more, uh, you know, it's not something that, you know, like a Texan accent, hey, y'all, let's get, you know, comfortable with each other, let's all hang out. <laughs> you know, it's not, it doesn't have even um, auditorily those kinds of feelings to it. So I can totally see how that would happen. Yes, I think you're right, because as I got to know people and I I opened myself up and, and spoke from that heart place that this is hard for me and I, I would like to express my difficulties, the, the feedback I got was you're, um, I see you... It, is exactly the word that you used. I see you as aloof, I see you as very stern and very serious. Whereas, of course, when people get to know me, um, I love to have fun, I have a great sense of humor, and probably the opposite of that. Yes. So through my opening up, I paved the way for more connection and a deeper sense of community. So why I mention this is, of course, as soon as I felt part of something, um, then I could feel easier about living here, and I felt like I fitted in. Yes, exactly. So would you uh, be willing to share uh, perhaps one story of how you have stepped into vulnerability? And what, I guess, to rewind, what has led you to this place, Jeannie? Because you and I have been talking about vulnerability now for most of the year. What led you to, to this? Well, it, it was sort of an interesting tie-in um, spanning, you know, a couple decades. But um, I saw Brene Brown's videos uh, on TED Talks about um, vulnerability and shame. And then, of course, I went crazy Googling her and I found all her PBS talks and all the rest of it because I loved, I loved the message that she was putting forth. I loved the fact that she was this 
PhD, <clears throat> very proud of her academic side, um, talking about something as touchy-feely as vulnerability, and she was uncomfortable with that but willing to tell the truth about that. And so she was really the perfect spokesperson, you know. She wasn't some hippie new ager, you know, saying let's just love each other and be open. And so it was a very interesting contrast um, for her to be the messenger for this message, first of all. And then the other thing was um, the the part she talked about numbing. And she said, you know, she went through um, the number of pharmaceutical drugs Americans are on, the amount of alcohol, the amount of um, cigarette and marijuana smoking and blah, 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 blah. And she went through all these markers, all these indicators of ways that people numb themselves. And, um, you know, she said we are the most, over-medicated, alcoholic, blah, 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 adult cohort in U.S. history. And why? Why is everybody numbing? And so I, I thought that was very interesting for her to be, to instead of looking at all these problems separately, to tie them together and say all of these things result in being able to numb yourself so you don't feel the pain in your life. However, what she also said that was very fascinating to me is she said you cannot selectively numb. So if you numb pain and you numb fear, you also numb joy and you numb love. So now you have um, someone living a very flat existence. You have someone very prone to depression. You have someone very prone to physical illness. So you think you're protecting yourself by numbing, but you're actually not. You're just driving those feelings that are uncomfortable and they're painful and you don't want to feel them but you're driving them deeper into your physical body deeper into your psyche nothing goes away and so it reminded me of a process that i walked um back when i was 16 and at that point you know i'd come from a, a kind of you know pretty violent unsafe childhood and my coping mechanism for that, because I couldn't change it and I couldn't get out, okay, I couldn't leave the situation and I couldn't change the situation. I was a young child. I wasn't able. Um, so the best survival response that I had in that situation was to numb. Because let's face it, if you're like, you know, captured and thrown into a dungeon, are you going to want to be there 24-7 in the dungeon? No, you're not. You're going to leave your body. You're going to go roam and fly with the eagles. You're going to, you know, numb your existing circumstances and go live somewhere else. And that works. That's actually a very effective survival mechanism. It keeps you safe in that situation. However, what then happens is, okay, now you're older or you've been released, and you can change the situation, and you can um, leave the situation, but you you don't feel it anymore because you've been numbing for so long that that's become your norm, and you're not even aware that you feel, you know, unsafe, that you feel violated, that you feel scared, that you feel trapped, because they've all gone into the numb zone. So I realized this when I was 16, and it was and it was actually through a spiritual experience. Um, you know, where God said to me, you have to heal, you, you have to forgive your father. And I was like, oh, I so cannot do that, but okay, I'll start, you know. <laughs> and up until, and that's when I realized, oh, up until then, my life had just kind of coasted along on this really even, like, la-la-la-la-la, no, I had no lows, and I would hear about people being depressed.
depressed, and I would just be like, what is that, depression? I, I, I had no, it had no reference point for me. It didn't make any sense to me. But then I also, of course, didn't have any of the highs. I didn't have, you know, the, uh, you know, huge passion and overwhelming love and attachments and all the rest of it because it was all numbed out to this even keel, which I have to say was quite pleasant and I had, was quite enjoying it, but I had been challenged to move forward. So I had to, um, and then I started dealing with all the stuff that I had numbed, and of course the floodgates opened, and I went into um, deep depression for about two years. I just I couldn't even go out because everything would make me cry because I had not been allowed to cry my entire childhood. So there were so many tears stored up, and there was so much pain that had to now be acknowledged and admitted. And that's what I. So her work really plugged into me on that level um and then that sort of all related to a teleseminar i did um a few years ago with dr gabor matei and he's the best-selling author of the book when the body says no it's international bestseller it's been translated into a bazillion languages because it's just so profound um and of course the fact that it comes from a medical doctor has broken the book through to a lot of new markets that otherwise people wouldn't look at it but Anyway, I did a teleseminar with him, and in the book, he has this very interesting study where they hook these people up to, you know, electrodes and, and sweat gland sensors and, um, you know, ways they can measure their hormone levels, etc. And then they would show them really disturbing photos. And the people would say, you know, you, of course, you had your people who would look at it and go, oh, ah, and their sensors would go bing, and their adrenaline, they would show that their adrenaline was spiking and their sweat glands were free. So it showed the physical results of that emotional stressor. But then there was this other group of people who you would show them these disturbing photos, and they would go, yeah, uh-huh, and they would look at the next one. Mm-hmm. They did not, and they, are you upset? No, no. I mean, you know, those are disturbing images, but, you know, it doesn't really affect me. So they were numbed. They could not consciously feel any revulsion or horror or, uh, you know, pain at looking at these photos. However, their bodies, meanwhile, were pinging off the charts. The adrenaline was flooding. Their pulse rate had increased. Their um, sweat glands were sweating. But they were completely unaware of it because they were in the numb zone. And so this is the way by you think you can avoid you know, life's pain and and whatnot by numbing, but you really can't because what you do then is you drive it deeper into your physical body. And the body doesn't lie. No. no. The body the won't body, back. No, it won't because your body's job is to lead you to healing. Your body's job is to always advocate on your behalf. And it's interesting as you describe that. I mean, of course, I'm very familiar with Gabor Mate's book and um, the work that he has covered. Um, I, I look, I mean, for for me, he's uh, one of my mentors because uh, the work he does is um, is a basis for the work that I do. And what's interesting, Jeannie, from what you said was when I first moved here, it was uh, very important for me, of course, consciously I didn't know it at the time, that I, I did numb out because of all the pain that I felt and the hurt and the sadness. And, of course, what happened a few years later uh, was that I, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome because my body had had enough. 
I had numbed and stuffed down and soldiered on for too long, and uh, it was it was too much for my body. Yeah, and if you refuse to feel it in your emotional body, you will feel it in your physical body. It it doesn't disappear. It has to go somewhere, and then your physical body you cannot numb that. <laughs> it's it's impossible. Your physical body is not under your conscious control. You know, it's more under your subconscious control. So everything that you stuff down. So and I think that that really helps to um, give, especially those of us who you know numbing is almost our default reaction to go stop that, don't do that because. You you numb that down and you deny that and you're going to have, you know, a health issue. You're going to get sick. This is going to happen. And that's worse, actually, isn't it, right? So then you, you know, it helps to kind of like snap you up and go, stop doing that. Yeah. Feel your feelings. Yeah, and very, that, very interesting. The, and that's the other thing, though. When you're used to numbing, how do you go from numbing to feeling your own feelings? Because you don't have, you don't know what that's like. You haven't, you haven't done that. So it, it's quite interesting. And, and for me, that's even something I'm still in process with, um, of just trying to um, be in the moment, but stay connected. And and sometimes it's almost like it's. I try to connect to my feelings, but it's very hazy. It's not fluid yet. It's not fluent. I can connect to my gut in a heartbeat. I can connect to my intuition instantly. I can drop into meditative state at the drop of a hat and, and have a spiritual connection because those are all things I'm practiced at. They're all things I'm good at. But to connect to my own feelings and say, okay, in this microsecond right now, what am I feeling is, is actually very difficult because it's like any of these you know, facilities, they're like a muscle. If you don't use it, it it's very yes. weak and it doesn't function very well. It's very faint, exactly. you know. Yeah, so the more practice we become at something, the more conditioned that we're to it. And, I mean, that goes for numbing, too. The more practice we're at numbing, then the easier it is to numb out and not even be aware that we're doing it. And, and likewise, uh, the more practice you become in connecting with your feelings, then the easier that will be. Yeah, exactly. And I came I came across a very um, pertinent quote from a writer named Sean Stewart, and he says, sometimes you feel other people's pain worse than your own. We're armored against our own troubles. We can't afford to give in to despair. Then you see someone else struggling, and it breaks your heart. Oh, my goodness. That's really powerful. Isn't that how great? Many of us can, yeah. How many of us can relate to that? Because it is, isn't it? It's easier to feel someone else's feelings. It's easier to look at the mother starving in Somalia trying to breastfeed her baby and just break down and lose it. It's easy to look at the at the kid who's obviously been kicked out of their home and they're living on the streets and just feel such sadness. But how about our own? And it's interesting. One of the questions I ask on my intake form uh, for new clients is, when did you last cry and what was the reason? And very often, you know, uh, the the answer will be um, when I saw um, something on the news yesterday or when I was looking at a YouTube video about something or other uh, or when I heard about, and it will be um, a local event or um, uh, an international event that literally breaks their heart. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that it connects to what you've just said. How interesting. 
Well, and we even use language to distance ourselves from the emotion. Like my own brother challenged me on this a few years ago, and we were discussing something, and he says, okay, you need to stop saying you. And I said, well, I'm not saying you, you. I'm using you as the general you, the general we, the general us. He says, no, I need you, you need to use I. Yes. I feel, oh, when I do this, I, I, I. So I thought, oh, all right. And it was amazing how much that changes things. So next time you want to say something or next time you want to make a statement to yourself, take it out of the impersonal and put it into I and see how that changes things and how that changes your experience of what you're talking about. Yes, because it comes back to ownership again. I'm always very mindful when I'm talking to somebody that I own it and I say I such and such because I have no idea if they are exactly the same as me. Mm -hmm. So I would like to... um, play uh, the discussion that I had with another colleague and friend, uh, Brian Johnston, and so that we can listen to his take on vulnerability and how he stepped in, when he stepped into vulnerability, what happened to him and how that changed things. So let's listen to that, Jeannie. Fabulous. So I'm talking now to Brian Johnstone. And uh, Brian is helping people move towards their phenomenal life. How fabulous is that? And Brian is an absolutely incredible matrix re-imprinting practitioner as well as an EFT practitioner and indeed an NLP certified practitioner. So he has a wealth of experience and knowledge working with private clients. Um, Welcome to the show, Brian. Well, thank you, Annabelle. Wow, that's... um wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm really grateful to you're, be talking to you. You're most welcome. I'm thrilled to um, have you on the show because, of course, as you know, the topic that we're discussing today is vulnerability. It's something that I've been exploring uh, for quite some time now, and you and I have had discussions about this in the past. It seemed really appropriate to open it up and learn a little bit more about your take on the topic today. Yes, I, I'm pleased to talk on the topic. I've um, I discovered um, over the last several years um, just what the power of vulnerability really is. So I'm, I'm I'm pleased to talk about it. So, what does vulnerability mean to you personally? Well, it comes up to me around vulnerabilities. It's for me, it's the fear of being judged, or say, being the fear of being made wrong, or and a fear of rejection. Um, it's like if if I show the world my wound, I'll be judged and ridiculed. And I was I was taught that to be vulnerable was to be weak. Yes, I think many of us have been in that experience. So um, when when you think about weakness, is that something then that you bought into perhaps in your past? So um, if I'm if I'm vulnerable, then I'm weak, and then I'm exposed to goodness knows what. Yes, it, 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 when I was young, it was all about being a man and sucking it up, and um, you know, men don't cry, don't show your emotions. Um, being made to feel wrong when I did show my emotions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so earlier in the show, I was talking um, a little bit about how I've often spent much of my life feeling like a square peg in a round hole and feeling a little misunderstood, really, by other people um, and perhaps even a bit of an outsider or, as one of my mentors might describe it, a bit of a freak. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I just wondered, how do you see yourself? Uh, freak's a good word. Um, I... I yeah, I always felt a little different. Um, I, I found it really hard to fit in. Um, you know, it it just seemed easy for other people to get along and just ca- carry along the the normal path. And, but I always felt um, really sensitive to other people and and to other people's pain in particular. And um, and I wanted to fit in, but I just couldn't seem to do it. I I couldn't take it, um, take something seriously enough. I just couldn't see um, what it was really all about. So I, I was a bit of a freak too. <laughs> so did you feel? Um did you spend any time feeling like an uncomfortable outsider? Yeah, yes, I did. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I, I occasionally would just do something outrageous just uh, because I had to because it was I felt too constricted by, by um, trying to stay to the straight and narrow. So I'd yell out in school or something. I'd yell out in the middle of the class or something. Shout out rhubarb or something ridiculous like that, and just just because it couldn't stand the the uh, the atmosphere or what was going on, it was just so constricting. Um, so, uh, yeah. So that what's interesting for me then is even so at school as a child, you would maybe put yourself into a very vulnerable place to yell out in, in the classroom. So I was punished for it, of course. Yes. Yeah, um, but at the time it was just something I had to do. I just couldn't hold it in any longer. So it sounds as though you were very courageous, and it didn't matter to you what people thought of you. Was that the case? Um, I didn't. I cared deeply what people thought of me. Ironically, um, I spent most of my existence um, worrying about just that. Just trying again to fit in and and um worried fiercely about what other what other people thought of me um that's the the irony of the of the whole thing so try as i did i just couldn't i just couldn't seem to fit so what i observe um with the client many of the clients that i work with and of course this is part of the essence of this show about people-pleasing, is that often um, because we're so worried about what people think of us, we then move into that place of people-pleasing and thinking about the other person or the other people and making sure that um, we're doing the right thing in their eyes. Is that your experience as well? Uh, Well, it is, yes. It it is. I mean... uh 
as I say, I cared deeply about what people thought, and I really wanted to conform. But I think I was t to such a degree um, that I sort of backed myself into such a corner or into such a small box that uh, in order to breathe once breathe. in a while, I had to kind of explode into some uh, expression of myself that so that I wasn't confined anymore. Mm-hmm. And so how did you step into vulnerability and express yourself? Well, well I guess, guess I think the first real example I had of vulnerability being something that um, had was powerful or had some merit to it was really... Um, um, in a workshop and just sitting in a workshop and feeling this emotion build up inside me to the point where I had to get up and say something about how I was feeling and and how hurt I felt and I cried and and um, just let it all out and it was, wasn't really a lot of thought about it it was just like an impulse I had to just do it and um, afterwards short while afterwards people came up to me and said, Oh, thanks for doing that. That was incredible. Wow, you've made given me permission to feel vulnerable. And so I thought, Wow, I didn't realise that um doing that would cause that to happen. So then I started to understand more about um showing vulnerability and allowing it. How interesting that you opening up and expressing yourself and uh, your true essence then enabled them to to do the same. Yes, it gave it really gave them permission, and um, it you know afterwards I, it felt really really right and really good, and it sort of it gave me permission of course to to open up even more, and and so that was like opening a door for me. And do you think it was because they could see who you truly were, Brian, like there was no mask, no falseness, that that helped them connect on a much deeper level to you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there was an immediate connection and, and a warmth and just um, that receiving of each other as a result of it. So this, I guess this is something that I'm really curious about because as I've stepped more and more into vulnerability over the past year or so, I've observed that my, many of my friends have too. And uh, I see them or I see ourselves peeling away the layers and, and stepping out into that um, quite open and exposed place. And yet it's created deeper relationships for me because um, the depth of the conversation that I have with my friends and the understanding that we have is much richer now. So have you found a place of community since acknowledging your vulnerability? Yeah, I absolutely have. Um, I've, to be honest with you, I have never in my whole life um, had such uh, meaningful and so many meaningful uh, relationships with 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 a, a circle of friends say there's probably 20 or 30 people in my life that I can turn to now and 
feel accepted and and, and feel accepting of them. It's um, and every one of them is willing to step into the vulnerability. It's um, it's a, such a gift to have in my life. So going to that scary place and opening up actually has created deeper relationships. Absolutely, no doubt, no doubt whatsoever. Oh, fantastic. And I guess um, in closing, that as practitioners, matrix reimprinting, EFT, and so forth, using energy psychology, um, we, um, we step into a place of vulnerability as well with our clients from time to time. Um, because what I find is when I'm vulnerable with my clients and I'm clear on where I am, if perhaps there's something going on in my life that is distressing uh, or could be affecting uh, my outlook, then often I'll, I would tell my clients that so that they're aware. And what I've observed is um, how supportive they are as a result. So um, in the, the old me might have thought, I can't, I can't tell them that something uh, not positive is going on in my life because what will they think? They'll think I'm not able to handle it, so really I need to soldier on. Um, but what I've observed is if I'm open with them and I let them know, you know what, life isn't great right now, um, that connects us even more fully. And um, th- I get great support from them after the session. Yes, well, you're, what you're doing is you're allowing them to see you. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing how you receive yourself. So they're in a vulnerable position when they're working with you. And when you allow them to see your vulnerability, that deepens the connection so much. It gets so deep. And the work you do together is only going to benefit from that. Yeah, I, I agree. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Brian. Um, if somebody would like to get hold of you, how can they do that? Oh, um, my website is um, www.brianjohnstone.net. Now, I'll spell my name. It's B-R-I-A-N-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N-E. So that's www.brianjohnstone.net. And um, my email is brian at brianjohnstone.net. Fabulous. Thank you, Brian. And you, you're taking clients for private uh, matrix reimprinting and EFT sessions? Yeah, I am indeed, yes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your insights, and uh, I appreciate the time that you've given to doing this. Well, thanks, Annabelle, and thanks for asking such stimulating questions. Um, It's a great topic, and um, I'm looking forward to listening to the show. Wonderful. Thanks. Bye-bye. So, Jeannie, um, when uh, Brian and I had finished that conversation, he reminded me of uh, the story of the crab, Um, and I thought that it would be appropriate to mention it here. Um, He said that the crab, he talked about the crab having a skeleton on the outside of the body, which, of course, as we know, is very hard and inflexible, and the purpose of it is like an armor to protect the crab. Um, Mm -hmm. However, what I didn't realize um, until I learned this a few years ago is that uh, that armor plating, that protection, actually 
prevents the crab from reaching full growth. And ultimately, if it kept, if it stayed inside the shell, it would suffocate. So intuitively, the crab knows this, and it it, crack, it inflates its body up, cracks the shell, and then manages to back out of it, which of course is incredible and wonderful. However, what happens is now there's no armor plating, there's no protection, so it's open to attack and completely vulnerable. Uh, and yet it knows it has to go through that process in order to survive. And I thought, how, how powerful is that for us as a learning tool? Because I've certainly known uh, over the last couple of years that I've outgrown my protective armor, um, and you referred earlier to numbing, that was your protective armor, and I found that I couldn't breathe. But once I backed out of that and uh, opened myself up in a heartful and vulnerable place, that's when I actually w uh, went from struggling to actually thriving. But, you know, I, I'm thinking we should also talk about appropriate vulnerability because, you know, I think vulnerability has to be balanced with, you know, the, the the biblical admonition of don't cast your pearls before swine. So it's like you don't have to say, well, I'm just going to walk around and I'm going to be vulnerable to everybody at every time because that's what I'm, you know, that's the good way to be. I think it's that, you know, like for me, the way I see it is, okay, if I'm in an intimate relationship with someone, so that is either a family member, um, a friend, you know, someone who has been given a position of importance in my life, someone who I'd like to spend time with. It could also be um, a work-related person, but somebody where there is a connection that goes beyond work. That in those cases, um, definitely I want to, you know, be vulnerable with them, which is basically speaking the truth and owning my own feelings, and I want to sit in that space when I'm in relationship with them. But if I'm picking up my kid from school and there's some mum there and blah, blah, I don't, I don't need to sit in vulnerability with her. I can just go, oh, whatever, and let that go. I can, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's important as well that, you know, we don't have to walk around, you know, with our hearts wide open to everybody, giving them the potential to hurt us. I think it's only the people who we are consensually in intimate relationships with that should be um, given that level of trust. Yeah, I agree, and thank you for bringing that up. Uh, because, like you say, the heart wide open and open to everything uh, can be hazardous. So mm -hmm. um, I would agree that it, it would be, for me, somebody in my circle of friends uh, in, in my community that I feel I want to open up to. And, and therefore, it's beneficial for both of us that I open up. Because, for example, in, a, in our friendship, it would be um, futile if you were open and I was closed and protecting myself with some armor, because then how could our relationship deepen or become rich? Exactly. Uh, but you're right, uh, I believe, that uh, we, we, it's not necessary to expose ourselves and open our hearts to everybody we meet, somebody in the supermarket. However, of course, people do that. And I think there's a difference between get going into story, uh, which is perhaps in an inappropriate setting like the supermarket or in a workshop setting uh, or in a business meeting or something like that, and then in the right environment uh, to be open and express ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. And I think in the supermarket, that's a, those are really great examples you brought up because, you know, you're not necessarily going to be a fake person in the supermarket, but maybe the distinction between being authentic and being vulnerable. I think you can be authentic 100% of the time with 100% of the people, um, you know, which is, I guess, maybe a version of speaking your truth and and um, living in your truth, but it's not as deep as vulnerability. I'm just kind of exploring this as we go. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, there's been times where I've had very meaningful exchanges with perfect strangers, you know, because the, the time and space opened up for that. Um, and it was beneficial to both parties, and I will never see that person again, and they'll probably never see me again, but... Um, I was willing to be authentic in that moment, combined with being loving, combined with being c- compassionate, right? Because if you you can't really say things to strangers if they're not surrounded with love and compassion, because then the person's like, "Who are you?" Like other than a jerk, and they walk off, kind of thing. <laughs> um, you know. So, you know. But if we if we say, okay, well that's that's the mo for strangers. And then for my intimate or, you know, acquaintances, casual friends, is just to to say to yourself, with my casual friends and strangers, I'm going to sit in authenticity, surrounded by love and compassion. And then with um, my family members and my intimate friends, I I will sit in vulnerability with them. And then, of course, the lines can blur because I have a family member who is just, I, there's, She's just so wounded, and she won't deal with her wounds um, thoroughly enough. <laughs> so she remains wounded, and she remains fairly fairly toxic, and there's no way that I can have an intimate relationship with her. So even though she's a family member, I can't be intimate, but I can continually sit in love and compassion when I'm with her. And, and you know, whereas normally if I had someone like that in my life, I would say, oh, you know what, you can't be in my life because that's just too much work and that's too much negativity and blah, blah, blah. But she's a family member, so my alternative is to every time something comes up, send her love. Send her love. Think of her in love. Remember her in love. Just love, love, love. And keep sending that and keep sending love and compassion. And that's really the most authentic response in that situation because there isn't really anything else that can be done with that. But also, as I listen, I I sense as well your courage to be vulnerable in that situation because you've you've already clearly stated if she wasn't a family member, I probably wouldn't be doing this. Uh, But because she's a family member, uh, I I send love, I send love. So are, are you stepping into a vulnerable place? do that well that's a good question am i stepping into a vulnerable place or am i stepping into a compassionate authentic place well i was thinking it would it's outside of what you would usually do so that therefore takes courage and you're coming from a compassionate place uh so i would i i would suggest that then that takes vulnerability Mm mm-hmm well, it certainly takes self-discipline. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was when I was talking to Brian. I was also because he was talking about um, the community that he created um, around him when when he he was vulnerable in a, a I believe it was a workshop setting, and uh, I was um, taken back to 2009 which was the year that everything turned around for me not only in my personal life but in my business life uh, because um, 
my business f flopped. Um, I was uh, spending more than I was making. Uh, my re relationship went down the tube. Uh, various things in my personal life happened, and I just felt like everything was spinning out of control. Um, and so I had to really reassess what was going on in my life and decide what needed to happen. And I actually went to stay with my parents, who at the time lived in the Mediterranean, and uh, in my late 30s, I opened up to them and said, um, this is what's happening, and uh, th this doesn't feel very good right now, and maybe I should, in inverted commas, be living a different life to this by the age of late 30s, but it's not going that way right now, and it was the most... Um, difficult, one of the most difficult things I ever had to do uh, to, mm -hmm. to admit to my parents that I wasn't successful. Um, not that they put any demands on me and expected to me, me to be anything, but I had to say everything that I've put my heart and soul into is not working out right now. Mm, that's um, very and, vulnerable. Yeah, I, I, it felt, um, I felt like, I felt like a child going, going back to her parents. But what happened between us was I was staying with them for a couple of weeks, and over that time uh, we sat in uh, some really deep discussions about what was going on and what it felt like. Uh, that This was the beauty of it because uh, even my parents got into what it felt like for them as well, and we were able to connect on a much deeper level, and I felt so not only supported by them but really understood and then when I got back to Canada, I then opened up to my friends, and I said, this is going on, and I know I, I usually disconnect. It's safer for me to do that, uh, to pull away when times are hard, uh, but I really need to talk to you about what's going on in my life. And not, it was then that I noticed my friendships became deeper, and the conversations that we were having were much more heartfelt and uh, richer for me. Mm -hmm. And then I also um, put myself out there in business and uh, talked to some colleagues and said, uh, this, this has been going on for me and things aren't running very smoothly. But where I'm going with this is because I was open, and, but I don't feel I was inappropriate. I talked to people who were close to me either in business or uh, personally. Uh, that is when the, the whole energy of who I was um, in my community shifted. And I, I noticed it was quite, quite interesting, the shift that happened uh, not only in who I, who I was and how I felt in my personal life, but how I was responding in business as well. And uh, so everything started to turn around for me. I mean, I went to almost bankrupt to uh, filling up my practice within a couple of months. Um, and the clients kept coming and kept coming. And uh, being able to look at myself again uh, with the, the, the self-worth that I knew had always been there but had been lost. So it was a very incredibly painful time, yet an incredibly rewarding time because I had the courage to be vulnerable. Then it was quite clear how everything turned around. Mm -hmm. But let's let's take somebody else who had who also has the courage to be vulnerable with their parents and has what seems to be because you had a very positive response just all around. Um, so then your conclusion from that is, well, that's so worth being vulnerable because look at the rewards it brings. But let's say that, 
let's say there's someone who's, you know, gay and his father is rabid anti-homosexual and he decides it's time to be vulnerable. I need to share with my parents, look, this is who I am. This is a, a essential part of me. And he gets a terrible response and he's excommunicated from the family. And, you know, it's by all accounts a negative response. Um, but then if you if you can sit with that pain and if you can sit with those feelings again, then the gifts come, right? Because then, then, then he might say, hmm, so the fact that I'm so wounded by this and the fact that my self-worth is so tied to what my parents think of me, what am I doing? These, these are aspects of myself I need to heal. These are boundaries that need to be, you know, erected and reinforced in my life that why would I, you, you know, so then there's still, you can still have a net positive, you know, outcome. And just because the initial you know, response to vulnerability is negative, you can take the gifts that are in there. You can take the mirror, the illumination of where you need to go to heal yourself next and take that and still come out with a net positive if you're willing to stay in vulnerability. But if you get the negative response, you go, that's it, I knew that would happen, I never should, I'm not being honest ever again, well, then you walk away with a net negative. Yes, and of course that that is... um what happens to many people too that that was too painful for me i was too wounded so i'm certainly not going to go there again um i mean there is in, in my opinion there is a risk involved in stepping into vulnerability we expose ourselves emotionally um but as you've mentioned what would be the pe- the long-term payoffs as a result of going through that process and journeying through it to where the person ultimately ends up uh, yeah. And how they can—I mean, you mentioned earlier authenticity. How they, through being authentic and saying this is who I am, this is what I'm experiencing and how I'm feeling, then they're really, in my opinion, standing in their power. No matter how beaten down they feel in that short term, um, they are going to come out the other end. Um, and because of the whole of that will have been a learning uh, tool for them. But and of course, with tools like energy psychology they can process and care for themselves and come out the other end mm-hmm. and 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 uh you know a catalyst for further and deeper healing within themselves so i think that that a lot of if people can have that in mind of you know something that can mitigate the risk of vulnerability so go to your worst case scenario okay you're vulnerable with um your husband and you end up he ends up leaving you you end up the relationship well, stay with that. Stay in that space because there's a healing process that needs to go on. And maybe you'll come back together, but you'll have a relationship that is night and day to the one you had before because now it's founded on authenticity and truth. Or maybe he will leave and stay gone and you will realize, oh, my gosh, I had no idea I was um, so dysfunctional and I was so inauthentic because I was staying in that relationship. And by having the split there and then you start going through your healing process and you realize, oh, my gosh, what have I been doing all these years? So either way, you can, if you just stay with it, if you don't retreat into the hurt and the, um, you know, well, I never should have done that, but, right? And the judgment of yourself, if you can stay in compassion, if you can stay in authenticity and keep working it through, either direction that it goes, whether you get back together, where you stay separate, is going to be the right decision for you. And I think that's really the path of vulnerability, is not to have things the way we want it, but to have the best 
for our um, our self and our spiritual self and our higher self and the self that we are trying to manifest and become on this earth. So I think it's with vulnerability, it's also really important to take more of a long-range view with it and, and not to get derailed by the minutiae. And it's very similar to the healing journey. You know, when you're trying to heal yourself from a chronic illness, there's lots of ups and downs. There's lots of healing crises and setbacks, and you want to throw in the towel and go, this holistic healing garbage doesn't work. It's, look, I'm sick again. I'm sicker, you know. But you have to have the faith. You have to have the commitment to the process. And then you realize that, oh, I may have been going up and down, but I'm actually spiraling upward. And now my downs are not so low. I'm never going as down as I was when I started. And then over time, when you come to the end of it, is when you go, oh, that was so worth it. But when you're in process, it's very hard to feel that it's worth it. It's very hard to stick with it. And so I think the key from what you, for me from what you've just said is um, not moving into that place of blame and judgment. Yeah. Um, and as you say, throwing in the towel or I'm not good enough and this isn't working. So I love that idea that vulnerability is a process. It's not a short-term fix. We jump into and everything's uh, fabulous. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as Brene Brown has stated very clearly, it certainly was not that way for her. Um, and the the process that I described of 2009, I mean, that didn't happen in a week. That that was a process that unfolded throughout the rest of that year and into 2010. Exactly. Uh, and I, I imagine it's still going on as well. So, Jeannie, I'd love to play um, my discussion with Paul Zelitzer um, and his, to hear his take on vulnerability. So let's have a listen to that. Mm-hmm. So my other guest today on the show is the fabulous Paul Zelitzer, who is not only my business coach, but I'm blessed to say a dear friend at all as well. And Paul is a business success coach for spiritual entrepreneurs, and he is the director of social media for Wisdom 2.0. And it's my delight to have you on the show today discussing this particular topic, Paul. Welcome. Thank you so much, Annie, for having me, and, and welcome everyone who's listening in. Really appreciate you listening in to a show on vulnerability. How cool is that? Yes. Well, thank you for your vulnerability and joining us uh, to discuss this. And the title of the show, Paul, as you know, is um, "People Pleasing: uh, From People Pleasing to the Courage to Be Vulnerable." So, I'm curious, first of all, to know what does vulnerability mean to you? Hmm. It's a it's a great question, Annie. I, rather than thinking about a dictionary type definition, I, I, what more for me? I'm a I'm a kinesthetic person, a really embodied person. I feel my way through the world rather than think my way through the world. So um, when you ask me that question, Annie, I think of Brene Brown, who you and I are both fallen in love with, or at least I have. <laughs> over the past number of months, uh, it seems like a huge portion of us who are thinking of this topic see Brene as a leader. And Brene talks about the, the pairing, the, the coupling of vulnerability and what she calls wholeheartedness. And I just love that. You know? So when I think of vulnerability these days, I think of allowing my heart and the rest of my being to be open enough that I can experience a wholehearted relationship with life. And they go together. I can't have one without the other. So when I think about vulnerability, it's that ability to be open enough that my 
richness, my fullness, and my wholeheartedness uh, relationship with life can be present. Mm. I, and so how easy is that to be um, to embrace life in that way? Um, it depends on the moment. <laughs> in some moments, it's it's really joyful and sweet. Uh, I don't know why, but when you when we were talking about it, I just thought of the night my daughter was born, and we were up all night and living on a farm on the Rio Grande, and somehow the whole valley knew something magic was happening. And the horses walked right up to the window, and were looking in all night and just holding this newborn child. And those moments incredibly sweet and then more recently Annie that was 12 years ago more recently over the past two weeks um, we have had three major deaths in our sort of network and in our family including a murder in a very tragic environment and, and being open-hearted and vulnerable in the past uh, two weeks has not been easy. It's been a really fierce practice of a lot of courage. I'm like, all right, I don't like the way this feels. This is hard. It's really kind of rocks your boat. Uh, the murder was a dear friend of mine, her mentor. And when things like that happen, um, there's a part of me that wants to close down and say it's too painful to be open-hearted. But I try to remind myself to relationship between wholeheartedness and vulnerability. When I shut down my vulnerability, then I lose the wholeheartedness and I become more like a zombie and I don't want to live that way anymore. So it, it can be incredibly sweet and it can be incredibly fierce and either way I choose to do it mm -hmm. as best so, I can. I'm not perfect at it. <laughs> no, of course. Um, I, but as you mentioned in the last couple of weeks, I mean, you've really put this into practice. Can you explain a little more about what you interpret wholeheartedness to be? Well, let me let me tell you, I'm a, I was raised Jewish, Annie, and um, in, in Judaism, if you ask somebody a question, one of two things are likely to happen, and one thing's likely not to happen. You're not likely to get a straight answer. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of two things is likely to happen. You're either likely to get asked another question, which I do all the time, as you know well, or you get told a story. So let me tell you a story, right? Uh, so the night after my fiance's um, mom died, she, my, my fiance's name is Francesca, and Francesca took off to Germany because her mom wasn't doing well, and it turns out her mom died about 75 minutes after she got to the hospital. And I had just found this out, and obviously it was very um, intense. We didn't know that her mom was dying. We knew she had cancer and wasn't doing well, but we didn't know she was dying that quickly. We thought Francesca was going there to kind of assess the situation and figure out what was going on and maybe uh, think about some hospice care for her mom. So I just found this out, and I had had a, I had a retreat. I was uh, scheduled to lead a leadership retreat. And uh, I was people coming in from, um, there were 10 leaders in a particular community coming from all over the country, and one guy came from South Africa. And I've been looking forward to this for weeks, really amazing people. And we were doing, we had this incredible agenda to do very deep work. And I, you know, found out um, on Friday morning that the, you know, this, my fiance's mom had died. I didn't sleep well. I was really shooken up. I'm talking to Francesca. She's in Germany. It's an eight-hour time difference. Um, so a lot of the conversations are going on in the middle of the night for me here in New Mexico, and I was kind of a mess. 
And I was trying, you know, this organization had put a lot of resources into getting people here. Um, and I was trying to feel, what do I do? Right? How do I be skillful here? I can't pretend that I'm my normal sort of grounded, regular self. But I also don't want to cancel on them because these people had put a lot to get here, and um, I was really excited about it. Right? And so what I did is I chose to be vulnerable, and I contacted the um, director, the executive director, and I shared and told her what was going on, and she was incredibly compassionate, and um, we brainstormed a little about how I could you know, give people who were in the room a little sense of what was going on, and I shared and I sang a song leading, uh, starting the retreat off to help people, uh, a song, a Jewish morning song, and that we sang when somebody's died, and it was amazing what happened down about, you know, I wasn't at my best on some levels, my thinking wasn't as clear as usual, I wasn't as fast, I was more easily distracted, one guy had a hearing aid and it was making these weird noises, and normally, I, you know, I'm pretty um, good about staying focused, and I meditate, and I'm, I'm a pretty focused guy, but I was not focused at all, and those kind of things were really distracting me. And yet, by being honest and vulnerable with the group and telling them what was going on and sharing a little bit of um, a spiritual practice from my tradition, and, you know, like it didn't take up the whole retreat. It only needed to take maybe five or ten minutes, and then there was a reference point throughout the weekend. And we had an incredible retreat, Annie. It was just, it was one of the deepest leadership retreats I'd ever been a part of. And everybody who was there remarked that, that kind of container of wholeheartedness and vulnerability allowed each of them, and they had had some organizational conflicts, and they were facing some big, big financial choices, uh, a financial crisis, in fact. And that depth, that wholeheartedness, allowed them to sink in and find a way through it. That On the other side, it wasn't easy in that weekend. There were some hard, hard issues that needed to get addressed. But the wholeheartedness and that depth and that willingness to be vulnerable allowed the space for the organization and the people in it to transform, right? Mm. And that's like, what else could you want in this life, right? Absolutely. So it's interesting that you say that because I observe when I've been vulnerable in the past, if it's in a public place or within uh, my circle of friends, that community seems to re- suddenly transform, as you mentioned, Paul, and really deepen. And the, um, the conversation becomes richer, and the energy becomes higher. And the, there is that transformation uh, that I believe wouldn't take place if we hadn't connected into that wholeheartedness. Yes. Yeah, one of, one of my latest passions, Annie, as you know, I'm passionate about conscious business, and that's what Wisdom 2.0 is all about. And I've been learning a lot more about the cultures and in organizations. But we can think about a culture anywhere, a culture in a family. You know, if you're a parent and you're a leader in your family, everybody's a leader, right? And when we pay attention to cult, when I pay attention to culture, and and when I'm learning from some of these world leaders, I mean, I get to now interact with a guy named Rich Fernandez, whose specific job at Google is just to nurture the leaders at Google, the highest executives at Google. He's like a coach for the highest executives at Google, right? Incredibly smart guy, and to be able to be in conversation with people like Rich about culture and how 
those of us who are leaders, and again, we all are leaders, whether you're like running Google or you're a mom of four kids, um, you're a teacher, a preschool teacher, every one of us is a leader at some area of our life. And when we're willing to bring our vulnerability and wholeheartedness into the places that we're leaders, the entire culture transforms. Wow, you see, that that is fascinating because I mean you you've used the phrase the courage to be vulnerable. That's what I've titled the show. But often, uh, certainly speaking for myself in the past, I didn't feel safe enough to be vulnerable because I was concerned about what people would think of me. So that you're talking about a corporation here that is willing to be vulnerable as well, or one desiring. In, in a learning process of how to do that more, and I, I can speak to Google because I've been there, but, but in Wisdom 2.0 we're seeing Facebook talk about their culture and getting more vulnerable. And Twitter, uh, the founder of LinkedIn is going to be talking about compassion in LinkedIn and some of the things they're doing to bring more uh, humanness and and. Um, LinkedIn is sort of usually the butt of all jokes about how rigid it is as a, as a social network, right? It's very professional. And, and here's the CEO talking about compassion and how they want to bring more. He's not using the word vulnerability, but it has a feeling to it to me. But anyway, what I'm seeing, Annie, is this willingness to step into conversation and an acknowledgement. And Google I know the best because of folks like Rich, and there's a guy named um, Ming Tan, who wrote a book called Search Inside Yourself. And Search Inside Yourself is a program now um, for the employees at Google, which teaches emotional intelligence and mindfulness to their employees. Oh, you, wow. They're paying their employees to get trained in emotional intelligence and mindfulness. And, and a key aspect of emotional intelligence is being aware of what's going on with your own emotional state and finding effective ways to communicate that um, rather than, you know, to use EFT language when somebody's really charged in their nervous system but they don't acknowledge it and don't do anything with it, that also deeply impacts the culture. And we know that now in companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and, you know, General Mills, I was talking to somebody on social media today, General Mills and Target, executives at very high levels are starting to practice this not that we're done. It feels like we're just at the beginning of a learning curve of how do we do these in some of these uh, cultures that in the past have not allowed much vulnerability. Yes. And uh, so what do you foresee as, uh, as uh, like for me, I hear a turning point here. So what do you foresee happening um, with big communities uh, embracing vulnerability and encouraging it more to the point? Annie, this is the most exciting time to be a human being I could ever possibly imagine on planet Earth. <laughs> right? if there's this global waking up going on, and because I'm in this conversation with very significant people, uh, Marianne Williamson is going to be the uh, keynote speaker at our 2013 conference. Eckhart Tolle was the keynote speaker of our 2012. You know, like some of the leading spiritual thinkers, but also, you know, LinkedIn and Google and Facebook are sitting there in the audience as well as many other traditional businesses. There's a coming together of people who are in a leadership sector in uh, our business world, and that's where the money and the horsepower is, right? There's a lot of money at Facebook. Um, with people who think this way. Marianne Williamson wouldn't have a hard time with the conversation we're having today. She knows something about vulnerability, right? 
Um, she's the one that everybody loves to quote, right? You know, your greatest fear. That quote has gone around the world. Some people attribute it to Nelson Mandela, but actually it was Marianne Williamson who wrote that quote, right? She she understands the power of vulnerability, and, and folks like her bringing it into places that, um, to me, even five years ago would have been inconceivable. Yeah, very exciting times. Yes, very exciting. And uh, I'm so pleased that you're in the middle of it, Paul, and that you took time out of your very busy schedule um, to be with us today. I, I greatly appreciate that. Um, so, Paul, if anybody uh, was wanting to get hold of you, how could they do that? Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this, Annie. I really appreciate how you do what you do and the message you're carrying around this. And if somebody does want to get a hold of me, my website is paulzelizer, Z E L. I-Z-E-R.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate your time. And uh, have a wonderful day and enjoy stepping further into vulnerability. <laughs> Thank you so much, Annie. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Uh, so, Jeannie, that we, uh, Paul and I were discussing very briefly about st uh, vulnerability on a on a much wider scale there, Paul was uh, talking about various companies. I wondered if you had a take on that. Well, I think it kind of ties into the whole rise of social media where businesses started to figure out that um, actually people will buy more if there is um, if they feel that they're actually buying from a person and someone who cares and there's a relationship in place versus the formal, faceless, nameless corporate entity. And in in the corporate world, as I'm someone who's run my own business since I was 19, it was long held that, you know, the more professional you were, the better. And professional meant nameless, faceless, distant, um, benefit-driven, but there was no talk about relationship marketing or, you know, social marketing. And so business has sort of... You know, as Paul pointed out, it's a very interesting way that it's merging into the relational um, field. And then, of course, when you're talking about relationship, you're talking about emotional fluency and you're talking about vulnerability. You need to speak from a place of your heart. You need to come from a place of authenticity, not from a place of, you know, well, what do I need to tell you so that you'll buy from me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right? So it's... um. It's it's in a way it's inevitable, but of course it's also really fantastic that we get to see this happen in our lifetime. Yes, I mean I, I love the way you say it's inevitable, um, but but also how wonderful that we have this opportunity to see this shift, this amazing change. I mean I, it takes me back to the story I was saying to you about in 2009 because I felt like you talk about nameless, faceless and professional. I kept this uh, tape playing in my mind that I should be professional. Um, I, I'm an EFT practitioner. I shouldn't have problems. I'm the one who's supposed to look uh, perfect in inverted commas and uh, not have any problems. Uh, so that's why for a while throughout that year I soldiered on um, and I went into numbing out also again. I went into that. Yeah. Um, and yet 
the transition into um, opening up and saying, hey, look at me, I'm actually a human being. Yes, I am an EFT practitioner, and also horrid things happen in my life too. And uh, through the tools I have, I'm processing and shifting and changing. And that's when I realized there was um, an, an opening and a deeper connection taking place. Well, and it's also interesting to see the way different companies handle mistakes, right? Because that's a very vulnerable process as well. Yes. And <clears throat> I think that if a company is willing to say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, we, we completely screwed up. We, we didn't know that or we were led to believe this, but this was actually happening and they come clean with it, I believe they can retain their customer base with not only the, the trust intact, but possibly a deeper relationship with added trust. Because it's one thing, like you know from your personal life, you don't really know where that relationship stands until you've gone through conflict with that person. And then how they behave in conflict and how you two can manage your conflict resolution tells you whether that relationship is going to be a keeper or whether it's either going to blow up at the first conflict or you know what have you. So I think it's the same thing with a business relationship with your customers that you know and I've seen you know being in the um holistic health field there's been a couple of examples recently with two completely different companies who handled you know they both did something that was actually detrimental to their their um customers health one company owned it and said we didn't realize this because what happened is I went and I looked up the patent for this original technology and I blogged about it and then it just kind of took off into the stratosphere from there. People going, oh, we had no idea there was so much aluminum in here and this is can't we're taking this as a health product and yada yada. So the one company that had been really promoting this product, they came clean about it and they said we had no idea. We were this was the information we were given by the manufacturer. We are so sorry. We will refund anybody who wants a refund. We have pulled it from our shelves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, they they were not their business was not was likely, I don't know because I don't look at their financials, but I don't hear anything in the marketplace that indicates that their business was damaged. Mm-hmm. Um and then I, I, as a consumer, I would feel more trust in that person to say, well, if something did go wrong, at least they're going to admit it and give me the chance to get that product out of my house. And then there's another company where they were doing something they had in their product, and I actually emailed them directly, and I said, listen, I don't think you're aware. This is mislabeled. This species of probiotic doesn't actually exist, and here's what's wrong with it, and blah, blah, blah. That company made no public announcement, no public statement. They merely redid the label on the product. And they never even contacted me to say thank you. They just changed the product very quietly, very under the board. Well, now I don't trust that company. Would I ever want to buy something with that come from that company knowing that that's how they handle? Do you know what I'm saying? So the vulnerability even in managing your customer relationships I think is is very key and it's it's far more authentic to say to your customer, oh my gosh, I screwed up. I'm so yeah, sorry, what can I do to make it better? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, very valid, not only on a personal level, but on a business level, because many people listening are in business as well. Mm-hmm. So Jeannie, we're coming to the end of the show. You, um, you've brought to uh, our attention quite a number of aspects, and I'm very grateful for you as well, talking about vulnerability being a process. And also uh, one of the key things I'm taking away from what you mentioned was 
Um, we don't have to expose, walk around with our hearts bursting open, uh, being totally open to absolutely everybody we meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be appropriate. Um, but what would, if there's anything that you would like to say in closing, what might that be? Um, just to say that I, I too, have really enjoyed this because I feel like, you know, I, I didn't come here with a lot of fully formed, thought-out ideas, and I feel like we've been through a bit of a process on this call of, you know, sort of nailing down definitions and a bit more exploration, and that's that's really awesome. I always love to do that. Um, and then just, you know, something that's really helpful that's worked really well for me, this is a, a takeaway technique that you can take and do on your own, is just to find um, a gemstone or a rock. Maybe there's a river stone that calls to you, and hold it in your hands, and just put your intention into that rock to say, you know, I want to be more aware of my feelings. I want to actually stop numbing. I want to feel what I feel and, and to begin to start processing those because I, re- I understand that that's the pathway to healing. And you program your intention into that gemstone or into that, you know, rock or whatever. Um, and the, the underlying basis for that is that our, our, we're 70% water. And water has a crystalline structure. Masaru Emoto's work with, um, you know, putting the different words on the water bottles. When he put love, the water would form into beautiful crystals, and he photographed them. And when he put loser or hatred, the water crystals would just dissolve into this this whirling, ugly mess. So our bodies are 70% water. So right there, we have a resonance with a crystalline structure. And the, the basis being that a rock or a gemstone has a much more stable crystalline structure than we do because, you know, we're, we're thrown here and by, about by our emotions and by experiences and toxins and all the rest of it. So you basically program your intention into that stone or that rock. And then you either wear it or you put it in your pocket or you hold it in your hand and it, it just reminds you throughout the day to keep coming back to that place of feeling, to keep opening your heart, to just allow yourself to feel. And that's a really great step along the pathway. Um, and that technique was taken from a book by Cindy Dale called Energetic Boundaries, which is also, I think, a fantastic resource for anybody who's dealing with um, moving into vulnerability and wanting to do it in a way that's healthy and that is not going to, like you said, now let's just walk around with our heart open and, and just you know have people trample on us and abuse us and all the rest of it. No, we don't want to do that. We want to do it in a healthy way that maintains our own boundaries, but yet opens our heart and allows us to move deeper into healing. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Gio. So appreciated your time today. And give us another reminder, how can people get in touch with you? They can um, reach me and a lot of my protocols and all my freebies and stuff at listentoyourgut.com. Fabulous. Thanks so much, Jeannie. Thank you for your vulnerability um, in discussing this topic with me and exploring it. Um, I'd love to come back maybe in a year and... uh, revisit um, our vulnerability and see where we've taken this process. Very fun. Thanks so much, Annie. (laughs) Thanks, Jeannie. Take care. Bye-bye.